0: We are in a a series right now where we are looking at um, what we're calling the mothers of Jesus. These are the, the five women who are mentioned in Matthew's gospel, his genealogy of Jesus Christ. So these are all women who are part of the ancestry of the person, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, Ruth fits into this because she becomes the mother of Obed. Okay? And Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. David. Man, you guys are good. Yes, David, King David, the greatest king the Israelites ever had, the one who ushered in the, the high point of ancient Israel's history, that during David's reign was when they were most prosperous, when they were most well-known by the nations around them. They experienced uh, a peace that they didn't experience in um, other times. The question becomes, however, why Ruth? Like, David's the great king. Why isn't Jesse's wife, David's mother, mentioned in the uh, genealogy instead of Ruth? Why is the genealogy full of these women who have kind of a notorious past or a, or a history that is, that, is, that is marked, that is checkered? We've talked about this before. Um, the reason that the Bible, or why Matthew, sorry, includes uh, these women who have, are of so-called ill repute in his genealogies is because he 's trying to emphasize some things to the people he 's writing to. We saw how in the first one uh, with Tamar that he 's emphasizing that 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 salvation is entirely by grace and it is for all people, for the good people and the bad people, for the so called uh, uh, upstanding citizen, and also for the people who are seen as uh, you know kind of the the dregs of society and We saw last time that it was Uh, emphasizing that salvation comes entirely by faith, and it's a faith in the living God, and it is a faith that translates into actions of obedience. We saw that in the life of Rahab. What are we seeing in the life of Ruth? This woman is a foreigner. Uh, She is a widow, and she's not just any kind of foreigner. She's a Moabite. Now, the Moabites were the ancient enemies of the people of Israel. They were actually... Uh, born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And the Jews had a very, very negative view of the uh, the Moabite people, both when they were in uh, conflict with them in ancient Israel, but also later at the time when Matthew wrote uh, his gospel, they still had a hateful attitude toward the Moabite people. So why in the world is Ruth a Moabite? included in this genealogy well understand something around the time that matthew writes his gospel okay so we're talking well around the time the events of jesus life i should say so you know this is the year 10 bc to 0 a.d kind of thing around that time uh The people of Israel had spent a long time not hearing from the Lord. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of Israel heard from their God. They would would hear from their God through the prophets. God would speak to them directly through the prophets. And very often, he didn't have something good to say to them, but it was better than nothing. It was better than the cold shoulder, so to speak. But when the people of Israel were returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, this speaking this communication from god stopped god was silent and he was silent for some 400 years that's between the end of the old testament and the opening of the new testament for 400 years the people yes they had the torah they had the scriptures but they didn't have a direct revelation from god through the prophets the way they had in the past and they were starting to wonder after 400 years of not hearing from your god you may start to wonder, where is God? Is God still with us? Has God forgotten us? What about these covenant promises that he made with, made for us? Here we are. We are under Roman imp- oppression right now, living in Palestine. The Romans are, are ruling over us. And they're just the latest, in fact, in, in actually a long line of foreign overlords that they've lived under or occupiers that they lived under. And what about this promised Messiah that we've heard about in the the Torah and in the Old Testament writings, this this Christ who is supposed to come and, and free us from these oppressors? What happened to all of that? It's been 400 years. Does God care? Does God love us at all? Well, the answer is actually found in the story of Ruth. So what Matthew is doing in his genealogy by mentioning Ruth is he's saying a lesson our people need to learn, can be found in the story of Ruth. And that's why we're going to go back to it. Now, a a little bit of introduction about Ruth. My mouth is so dry today. I apologize if I have to do this a bunch of times. But anyhow, okay, a little bit about the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth is sandwiched between two very important Old Testament historical books. You have the book of Judges, which comes before Ruth, and then you have the book of 1 Samuel, which comes after the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a very short book in and all of itself. It's only four chapters long. I encourage you, if you've never read it, go home after this service this afternoon, read the book of Ruth, read it in entirety. It might take you half an hour or something. It's an amazing story. It's a love story. It's this wonderful love story. It's a a story of a a widow who meets the man of her dreams, and they fall in love, and they get married. And and basically, through that uh, falling in love and getting married, this wife's, this this woman's life is essentially saved, and they start a family together. It's very, very heartwarming. But it's much more than a love story. It's a great love story, but there's a lot more to it than just a love story. And there's two hints That help us understand that it's more than a love story. The first hint is in the first verse of Ruth chapter 1. Listen to what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That's the first thing. Then at the end of the book of Ruth, and this is why it's so great to have a pew Bible, because you could just flip to it with me if you wanted to, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. In Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, it says this, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, what we're going to do is we're going to put together, in the days of the judges... And the father of Jesse, the father of David. What are we trying to say? Well, Ruth happens, the the book of Ruth happens at a very, very dark time in the history of Israel. The days of the judges is actually ominous language. Oh, when you read this as as a Jew, you're supposed to go, Oh yes, the days of the judges, those were not good days. If you read the book of Judges, it starts out amazing. It starts out with Joshua bringing the people to the the nation of Israel, or to the promised land. They're finally in there. He dies. He's no longer their leader. But something happens. The cycle develops. And the cycle is this. The people of God are called to live a uniquely holy life among the pagans around them. So they enter the promised land. They're supposed to get rid of all the pagans there and set up this nation whereby the rest of the world is going to see what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, the nations of the world are wondering who the real God is and what he's really like. They're supposed to look at the people of Israel. But the problem is, the people of Israel keep looking at the other nations and deciding that they want to be like them instead. And so you get this cycle of the people of Israel rebelling against God, causing all kinds of turmoil and hardship and trouble in their lives okay god judges them for it he brings one of the nations around to to exact his justice upon them they cry out for mercy so god raises up a judge and the judge frees the people and the cycle and and delivers the people because they've repented and then the cycle starts over and over again and the problem is when you read the book of judges you see that every Judge kind of is a little bit worse than the one that came before. So the first judge, Othniel, he's awesome. The last judge, Samson, I know we love Samson, but Samson's actually kind of a, a mixed bag. He's not all that great. And by the end of the book, Samuel's the last judge, by the end of the book, things in Israel are awful. The book of Judges ends with these words in verse 25 of the last chapter. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's the problem. The people of Israel, because they have no king, they have lost their moral compass. Their civilization is crumbling all around them. You read the last couple chapters of of Judges, and your hair will stand on end. You know, at the beginning of Judges, God's promises seem so bright under Joshua But now they are fading, 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 fading fast. And and, and God's people are wondering, like, has God removed himself from uh, from us? Has has he stopped loving us? Does he not care about us anymore? Some of you might be feeling like that yourselves right now. You look around our culture and you see the things that are happening in our civilization. And you wonder, has God forgotten us? Does he still have an eye on us? Does he still love us? Well, enter the book of with its sad but very hopeful story of this one little family in the town of Bethlehem. And the answer to the question, does God still love us? Has, or sorry, has God forgotten us? In the, in, in the closing ch- words of, of Judges, the answer to that question is absolutely not. He has not forgotten us. God is still at work, even in the midst of the worst times. God is at work for his people. In the days of the judges, God kept hope alive through Ruth. That's why we get to the end of of Ruth and we read the last words of Ruth are that Jesse was the father of David. Because if you're reading this, you're saying, yes, that's the spark of hope. David comes from this line, the greatest king that Israel ever saw. Who, who made the best environment, the greatest times for the people of Israel. The ancestor of Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? He comes from Ruth. He comes from a barren, foreign widow outside the halls of power who lived in this little tiny town called Bethlehem. Now listen, What am I? this is the longest introduction ever, right? Eh? What am I trying to say? Is your life right now kind of a train wreck? Maybe you caused the train wreck. Maybe you've done some stupid things. Maybe you have given into some sinful behaviors. Maybe you've chosen some sinful paths. You know it. And your life is an absolute train wreck. You're a Christian, but you have fallen a long way from so called the state of grace. You have walked a long ways away from your Lord and Savior, and you have have found yourself in circumstances now where your life is an absolute disaster, and you seem like you are just careening from one screw-up to another, from one disaster to another. And maybe it has nothing to do with your own personal sin. Maybe you are suffering, and, and for some strange reason, around every corner, there seems to be another obstacle that you are facing. And other people are perhaps responsible for creating that obstacle in your life. It's not not your fault. It just seems to be heaped upon you. One disappointment after another, after another. Tragedy follows tragedy. You feel like, I can't get a break. And you think, God, where are you? What are you doing? You know, we all live deep down inside with that that sense that, that if we're doing the things God wants us to do, if we're following his law, if we're coming to church, if we're praying, if we're giving to the collection, if we're serving in ministries, then God's kind of, he's kind of obligated in some way to do something good in our lives. And we go through these seasons where it seems like there's not one stinking good thing happening at all when it just seems to be, like I said, careening from tragedy to tragedy to tragedy. And you say, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of, of these things, these terrible circumstances, I'm still staying faithful to God. And nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. I pray. I do my devotions. I, I share Jesus when I have opportunities to do it. I do all these things and nothing's changing. My, my circumstances aren't changing. Life still sucks. You need the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth it shows us God is always working he is always moving even when you can't see it just just like the ancient Israelites look we sin we often live like we have no king and we deserve that God would would remove his gracious hand from us and say fine When I say remove his gracious hand, you know what God does for you and for me? He says to you, because I love you so much, I am going to restrain you. I'm not going to let you go so that you can just pursue the sinful desires of your heart. Because I know that that will be absolute disaster for you. That's his gracious hand. And no different from the people of ancient Israel, do you and I have hearts that unless God works change in them, do we pursue our own wants, our own desires. We want no king. We want his kingdom without him as the king. And so we chase the things that we want and and we get frustrated at God when he doesn't give them to us and thanks be to him that he doesn't because otherwise we'd ruin ourselves. Here's the point. God has every right to say, fine, like, fine. You want to ruin yourself? Knock yourself out. But he doesn't. Oh he might let you feel it a bit. But if you are his child. If you are one of his beloved children. Whom Jesus spilled his blood for. He will never ever ever let you go. That's, that's what this story shows us. I'm going to just walk through the story very quickly. To show you how that is. What we see in Ruth is a picture of Jesus Christ. Ruth is what we call a type of Christ. She points towards Jesus. And she's a picture of God's commitment to us. That's what we're going to see here in this story. Okay. (laughs) Naomi loses her husband, right? Ten years she's been living in Moab. And she loses her husband. And she decides she's going to go back to her people. And so she says in verse 14 to her daughters, she says, get out of here. You know, go back. I'm going back to Israel. I'm going back to my people. You are Moabite women. You just stay here. And in verse 14, it says at this, they wept aloud again because these daughters-in-law loved their, their mother-in-law, Naomi. But then Orpah kissed uh, her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah's the sensible one, okay? Orpah's the rational one is the one who goes, yeah, like, there's no point in me going with you. You're not going to give me another uh, son to marry so that I can have children. I might as well go back. But Ruth won't go. She clings to Naomi, we read. And Naomi Naomi even tells her, like, don't be a fool. Look, she says in verse 15, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth's response is this. Don't urge me to leave or turn back from you where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your god will be my god where you die I will die and there I will be buried may the lord deal with me be it ever so severely if even death separates you from me now what she's doing is she is offering this unbelievable radical commitment to her mother-in-law from a human perspective Ruth's decision is absolutely foolish, okay? Because she has no hope. She has no prospects. She is literally willing to become a nobody for her mother-in-law. She's barren. She's been married to Naomi's son, and she didn't have any children, so, so she would be deemed barren back then. Sorry, ladies, even if it's a problem with the guy's uh, physiology. You were just considered to be a barren woman. And she's going to a foreign land, a foreign land of people who hate her. And she says, I will be buried where you will be buried. Now, you got to understand, in ancient cultures, uh, in order to have a peaceful afterlife, you had to be buried in your home turf. And so when, when Naomi, uh, Ruth says, I'll go with you to, to Israel, what she's saying is, I'm willing to risk even, not just peace in this life, but even peace in the afterlife by staying with you. And notice... At the very end of uh, the chapter, in verse 22, it says, Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. We're reminded of her station, of who she is. She's an enemy of God's people, and she walks into their turf with her mother-in-law. Why? Well, what Ruth is demonstrating is this biblical concept called hesed you've possibly heard this word before h-e-s-e-d hesed it is a word that describes self-sacrificial love that you are willing to incur loss for yourself in order to bless and have unconditional love for another look at verse 18 it's interesting it says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Now, that's, that's a bit of a hedge on the translation. What it really says is she stopped talking. So the idea is not so much that Naomi finally says, Oh, my dear, you're so wonderful. Oh, great. I love you. And your love for me is so awesome. Let's not talk about it. Let's go. No, she... The idea is, is that she hears Ruth say, I'm in with you. I'm coming with you. I will die with you. I will, I will be, be with you come hell or high water, no matter what. And she just goes, whatever. That's the response. And when she goes back to her homeland with this daughter-in-law who is so committed to her, the people say, Naomi's back. Oh, this is awesome. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Because the Lord has dealt bitterly toward me. This woman, Naomi, does not deserve Ruth's love at all. She doesn't deserve this hesed, and yet she gets it. Why? Well, verse 15, again, says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And her gods. Naomi is describing Orpah's decision as a theological one. And Ruth's response is just like Naomi's statement to her. She responds theologically as well. She says, verse 17 where you die i will die or sorry verse 16 she says your people will be my people and your god my god verse 17 where you die i will die and there i will be buried may the lord may the lord yahweh that's the covenantal name of god that now ruth is taking upon her lips may he deal with me ever be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me she responds theologically as well. See, here's what, what, what Ruth is doing. She's not just committing to Naomi. She's committing to God. One theologian, a female theologian, Carolyn Custis James, who's a great writer on, on the women of the Bible, she puts it this way. In an instant, the floodlights go on in the darkened stadiums of, of stadium of Ruth's soul, bringing the issue into razor-sharp focus. Despite Naomi's urgings, at its core, at its core, this choice is not about geography or family loyalty or even the future. This decision is about God. Ruth's hesed, her sacrificial love toward Naomi is rooted in the deeper commitment of God's sacrificial hesed to her. See In New Testament language, what you'd say is, Ruth found the pearl of great price. Ruth realized that the God of Israel, the God that Naomi had introduced to her, she was a godless pagan living in Moab until Naomi shows up with her sons. And she is brought into this this family, and she is discovering who this true God is, who this real God is, And, and she is willing to risk death. She is willing to risk Uh, A life of stigma and isolation among the Israelite people for the sake of being with her God. And her commitment to Naomi is rooted in that deeper commitment that she has to the living God that Naomi has introduced her to. See, she is a type of Christ. Because you see, Jesus is her far-off grandson who would one day be born, and he would commit to a people just like Ruth did. And he would practice the same hesed that Ruth did. This, this never-breaking, this, this always and forever never giving up love for us, for his people. And like Ruth, he would become a nobody for us the Son of God who comes into the world, the one who is reigning and ruling over absolutely everything, who who, who created the stars and flung them into existence, who, who lived in, in perfect fellowship with his heavenly Father before time even began, who had a glory that, that would outshine 10,000 suns. This man, this God, this Son of God, this second person of the Trinity, he comes into the world, and what does he do? He climbs into our flesh and blood. He becomes a tiny little baby, Utterly, completely dependent upon his mother. He grows up in this this little backwater village on the outskirts of the Roman Empire and he dies like a common criminal at the end of a short and pretty uninspiring life expected to be forgotten in the annals of history. He was willing to become a nobody. Why? Because... Being cut off meant that we would never be cut off. See, what's amazing about Ruth is, is that her name shows up in Matthew's genealogy. She gets included. She gets remembered. She gets the legacy. But Isaiah 53, verse 8 says, Who can speak of his descendants? This is the the prophecy of the suffering servant. And it says that Jesus, he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken jesus christ was cut off he was crucified he was put to death for you and for me remember i said at the beginning that israel's hope depended on god not them on his covenant with them him promising that he would not lead them and they failed to keep the covenant and so everything depended on whether God was going to maintain this hesed. And, and what we see for you and for me is that Jesus absolutely maintained this hesed to the point of death. So that here you are living through your 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 worst nightmare right now. The things that you ever never thought would happen are happening to you, and and the clouds are, are are thick above you, and you feel like you are in absolute darkness, and you wonder if you'll ever know joy or hope again because you feel like you've been abandoned by God. But the story is is that that Jesus was abandoned by God, so that you would never be abandoned by God. It does not matter how it looks on the outside. You and I can only see a very tiny little sliver of the plan of God at any given moment. It is so much bigger. It is so much more beautiful. It is so much more expansive than we could ever understand. And because Jesus shed his blood for you, not just for humanity in general, but for you, each and every individual in here, you can be assured that he will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. people walking in darkness, they saw a great light, Isaiah says. My prayer for you, friends, is that if you are in the midst of darkness right now, that you would see this light too. But every time you wonder in your head, maybe because you've done it again, sinner, or maybe because it's been done to you again, hurt deeply by someone, That every time you wonder, God, are you done with me? That you would look at the cross. Look at the cross and see that it is impossible for God to ever be done with you. Because he spilt the most precious thing in all the universe, the blood of his son. He spilt that for you. You are infinitely more precious to him than you could ever imagine. You have a friend in Jesus that sticks closer than any brother or sister. And even though sorrow is lasting through your dark night of the soul right now. There is the promise, the guarantee of joy. on the walls of this world because Jesus not only died but he rose for you and for me let me close with something a little uh, lighthearted, but still useful I hope probably the greatest cartoon movie ever made was the Incredibles. I see some disagreement from some of the younger people. Fair enough. A close second is Toy Story. And in Toy Story, there's this wonderful song, You Got a Friend in Me. Listen to these words. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice, warm bed, just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. You've got troubles? Well, I've got them too. There isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. We stick together and we see it through. You've got a friend in me. Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am. Bigger and stronger too, maybe. But none of them will ever love you the way I do. It's me and you. And as the years go by, boys, our friendship will never die. You're going to see. It's our destiny. Because you got a friend in me. That's Jesus' song to you. Because of his hesitance. Let's pray. Father. Thank you that we have a friend in you. We apologize. We are sorry. For the times when we fail. To trust. When we fail to remember. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and grief to bear. We pray now, Lord, that you will enable us to trust, to believe, to see your You your always and forever never giving up, never inexhaustible love, so that even in this darkest time of year, when the sun shines fewer hours than any other, And we feel the darkness close in. The light of your love shines through it. And gives us joy. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen.